Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello and welcome back to The Prospect Interview, where we meet some of the brightest minds of today and talk about the ideas that matter most in politics, arts and society. I'm Steve Bloomfield, Deputy Editor of the magazine. This week, we'll be talking to the political commentator Steve Richards about what makes a good opposition leader. Steve is the author of several books on politics, the most recent of which is The Prime Minister's Reflections on Leadership from Wilson to May. But as the Labour Party is choosing a new leader, we asked Steve to write an essay for Prospect magazine on those who oppose the PM from across the dispatch box. In his essay, he examines the history of Britain's modern opposition leaders to find out what makes a good adversary to the PM, from Margaret Thatcher to Edward Heath, Ed Miliband to Tony Blair, who managed to triumph and what made them different. But before we talk to Steve, I'm here with our head of digital, Stephanie Boland. Hello, Steph. Hi, Steve. So let's talk about the Labour leadership contest, a topic which you love talking about, particularly in the office. Yeah, I had a moment the other day when I realised we were exactly halfway through and it felt as if that must be impossible because it seems to have been going on for so long. But we're really only halfway through. We, yes, okay, yeah, 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 fine, we're, yeah, we're now just, 4th, just decide, over yeah. halfway through the Labour leadership contest. So there's lots of fun ahead of us. Are you enjoying it? I'm not sure I'd use the word enjoying, but uh, bring us up to speed with the first half or so. Um, We're down to just three candidates now. Yes. So if people have listened to our Tom Hamilton episode where we talked specifically about the contest and sort of how you spin in a contest like this, um, they'll know a bit about the process of how this is done. And as you say, we now have three people who are on the ballot for the leadership and that is Keir Starmer, Rebecca Long-Bailey and Lisa Nandy um, and Keir Starmer seems to be accepted as the front runner right now there's been some good polling for Nandy Rebecca Long-Bailey's campaign I think it's safe to say hasn't really got off the ground in the way her people might have hoped no no and I think it was it was interesting at the start there was this assumption from some commentators that well whoever the Corbynite left you know, the Corbynite part of the party, which is probably still, you know, the, the bulk of the party, whoever they support will be the favourite. And that is Rebecca Long-Bailey. But actually, Keir Starmer has peeled off quite a lot of that support. And from early on, he's been the front runner. And even some bookmakers uh, are even paying out now and saying it's all over. It's interesting, isn't it, how he's managed to be 
if not all things to all people, at least a viable candidate for people from different factions in the party. Um, he served relatively quietly under Corbyn, and I think that stood him in good stead compared to somebody like Jess Phillips, who was never going to get momentum to back her, for instance. No, and in fact, and Keir Starmer has not only been quiet under Corbyn, he's been pretty quiet during the campaign, so much so that, as you say, he's managed to get support from lots of different wings. You know, I've been talking to people on both the left of the party and the right, both of whom think he's probably on their side, but fearing he's on the other. And the fact that he's got so far through this contest with people on both sides of the party, not entirely sure where he stands, is that, I mean, I guess it's a good thing in terms of picking up votes. Is that a good thing in terms of, you know, if he actually wins, what defining what sort of leader he's going to be? I mean, we've been discussing this in the office, but thinking of other people in the Labour Party who he is reminiscent of, there's nobody he reminds me of so much right now than Sadiq Khan. And there are big differences between these two people um, as candidates, but it will be interesting if we get to a position where the two most powerful people in the Labour Party are holding the most senior, prominent public positions in the party are two men who worked as lawyers who are quite good at taking different positions, whose careers have been built on the value of being able to take different positions and convince and persuade. How do you think Labour Party members are making their choice? Are they looking for someone who shares their values? Are they looking for someone who think will be a, you know, a, a punchy opposition leader and at least sort of land some blows on the government? Or are they choosing someone who they think, yes, I think that person will be the best possible prime minister? Am I allowed to use the phrase third way on this yeah, on yeah, this podcast? Um, I think there is a sense, particularly from people who were previously both Corbyn supporters and kind of Corbyn agnostic, that they want to split the difference between somebody who will uphold, if not every single line item of the 2019 manifesto, certainly elements of its economic radicalism, one of the big successes of Corbynism, I think over time um, will become shifting the ground in terms of making economic arguments whether or not some of the other stuff on foreign policy and things like that sticks <laughs> i think is a lot a lot less likely um a lot of members want to hold on to that but also try and bring in an element of electability which suffered so badly in the last election and um i'm, I'm speaking quite hesitantly because i'm edging around the the topic of what exactly it is about uh you know man in a suit that appeals so much to the Labour Party selectorate. But, Over um, two women. Yeah, yeah, no, it's um, it's it's another baffling one. Um, what a shame it will be if by the end of April we found that we've still never elected a woman to the position of Labour leader. Um, Despite the fact that this was the election where everyone said beforehand, whatever it will be, it will definitely be a woman. The thing is, I'm baffled as to why people did say that, because the track record of putting a wide variety of women candidates against male candidates for the Labour leadership has not historically broken that way. Um, but there are also things that Keir is doing in terms of performing listening exercises. He's done video Q&As of kind of talking to the members. The slogan that he's now using, another future is possible, comes out of left activism and left thought within the party over the past few years why can't you imagine a better future is often a complaint that's been made of labour centrists who would kind of go we've got to be pragmatic and work with the system as it is the rebuttal has been 
we should imagine a better world and Keir Starmer's kind of picking that up. So he's been quite savvy in where he draws his ideas from. Um, and then also the bonus of looking like a prime minister might look. There we are. Um, Steph, thank you very much indeed. And uh, after a very short break, I'll be back with Steve Richards, who will explain a little bit more about what makes a good opposition leader. Steve Richards, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Um, Let's start with what the job of opposition leader actually is, because it's, it's not the easiest job in politics, is it? It's a really difficult job and the demands are underexplored because few leaders of the opposition actually win general elections. A lot of them end up losing or being kicked out and they don't want to reflect on it because it's been traumatic and difficult. I remember Ed Miliband saying to me at one point, oh, it's ghastly, uh, or it was ghastly, managing the Labour Party from opposition. And I asked Neil Kinnock once, are you going to write your memoirs? Because those nine years when you were leader were so fascinating. And he just said, oh, memoirs, they're for winners, not losers. So he's never reflected on it very much. And so you have this mammoth job, which is so interesting because it's about words and symbols, but not policy implementation, which is underexplored. And that makes it, I think, really fascinating. And I think it has so many demands to it. You've got to manage a party. You've got to articulate values of a party, but link those values to policies, which will appeal to an audience way beyond a party. Uh, You've got to respond to events. You've got to be an effective parliamentary performer, sometimes having to be very quick-witted. But above all, I think, because you've only got words, you have to be a political teacher. You have to explain to the voters around the clock why you are advocating whatever it is you are advocating and why, by implication, you should be the leader of the next government. And it is staggering how few leaders address that why question. They kind of assume, oh yeah, everyone will understand why. So here's what we're going to do. And just avoid that fundamental question. And the few winners from opposition did address the why question. And we'll talk about the, the losers as well uh, a little later. But, yeah. but let, let, let's losers start, are interesting let, too. Let, let's start Neil's wrong about that. Losers are interesting. <laughs> let's start on the winners. Who are those then that for you, and is it as simple as, well, if they won an election, therefore they were good at being an opposition leader? Or, or is it a bit more complicated than that? Well, that's a good question. And I'm afraid I think you have to be brutal about it. In the end, that is the test. You're elected as leader of the opposition to take that opposition into government. So, yeah, I think that is the criteria in the end of success. But, for example, you know, in your in your essay in the magazine, you were saying, well, look, yes, Ted Heath was elected, but there's not much that can be learnt from him, whereas Thatcher, Blair, Cameron, there are things that can be learnt from them. Yes, uh, Heath is the exception that proves the rule. He did win in 1970 from opposition when he was a poor opposition leader. He had qualities, Heath. I've just written a book on prime ministers. And to my surprise, I think he was one of the weightier prime ministers, even though he went through three and a half years of hell in number 10. Um, But in opposition, he was hopeless. He didn't understand that you had to have a coherent set of ideas and communicate them. So taking Heath out, there were four that won from opposition, 
who were actually highly effective teachers. Wilson, Thatcher, Blair and Cameron, who was an effective teacher in opposition, uh, even if he was uh, the most shallow of prime ministers. And they, they constantly were obsessed about explaining why they were doing what they were doing. So to, to pluck one example, Thatcher, I think her greatest quality was uh, this instinctive yearning to teach and to debate and explain. So she would reduce monetarism, which was her sort of policy in the late 70s, early 80s, to saying things like, when my father ran his grocer's shop in Grantham, he never spent more than he earned, and a country can't spend more than it earns. Now, that is sort of economic illiteracy, but highly effective attempt to explain, you know, monetary supply and economic complexity to a wider electorate who saw a Labour government struggling, borrowing money from the IMF and all the rest of it. So it was effective politics and an explanation. And the others did that as well. Wilson, the white art heat of the technological revolution. Blair, look, guys, you know, we're radical on the centre ground. So people who wanted assurance said, oh, yeah, they're on the centre ground. People who wanted change, oh, he's radical. And this constant attempt to make sense of what they were doing was the key to victory. And I think a leader of the opposition who doesn't do that, Cameron, you know, and Osborne, in explaining why they were... Uh, two figures in the Western world advocating real-term spending cuts after the financial crash in 2008 said, look, you can't stick with this lot. They've maxed out the credit card. They've borrowed too much. And, and they framed a whole argument that mesmerized parts of the BBC and more willingly supportive newspapers that wiping out the deficit was all that mattered. And it was clever, very clever teaching. Uh, but people like Jeremy Corbyn, who were seen as sort of orators who could mesmerise crowds, weren't teachers. The last manifesto, the Labour manifesto of December 2019, being a vivid example, about 200 policies in there, as if that was an explanation in itself. And when it didn't go down well, they announced another one. That doesn't explain why they should be in power. And the sequence they should have done, Corbyn and co, is to put an argument month after month, including in the mainstream media. We believe in the good that government can do. And they win that argument about why they are doing certain things. And having won the argument, then pop up and say, well, here's what we can do. And here's something else that we can do to show the good that government can do. And there was no attempt to do that. It's, and, and that is a more common pattern than the teachers who've won elections from opposition. Is there not an argument that they did try to do something like that? Not not to say that argument of you know government can do good, but they did have an argument about the damage that austerity had caused to the country, and so therefore look at the damage that's been caused by austerity, and here are our solutions. No, they didn't. They asserted, and assertiveness and assertions are not the same as explanation. They asserted that they were anti-austerity. But what does that mean? Um, why are you anti-austerity? So I don't think they did. They they uttered slogans like that. We're, we're against austerity. And assumed 
that that meant everyone would say, oh, thank you very much, we'll vote for you. So no, you've got to clear the ground in opposition. It's harder when you're in the Labour Party because much of the media is hostile, but you've got to do it. And, and they didn't. And I don't think they had an argument about austerity either, beyond the fact that they wanted to end it. Is there, and it's, it's difficult to make arguments based on, on just sort of two data points, but it's interesting that both Wilson and Blair, they were, there wasn't just a why, but they were also talking very much about the future, whether it was you know, the white heat of technology uh, or the idea with Blair that you know, this was a, a modern Labour Party, I've created new Labour. Um, does that just sort of speak to the moments where they were trying to gain power or is there something else there about, particularly for the Labour Party, how it should... Um, how an opposition leader should you know, push its party yeah, forward? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's very interesting because uh, both Wilson and Blair use the term modern and modernising and modernisation. They're actually terms that are vacuous and often cover up a lack of policy detail. Like I remember in the build-up to the 97 election, Tony Blair was saying, look, guys, we're going to modernise the welfare state. Now, he didn't know how, what he was going to do with the welfare state, but it sounded forward-looking. Um, and Wilson did it using technology and the so-called technological revolution. So, yes, you have got to appear as if you are moving with the tides and uh, looking ahead to a golden future. Now, in fairness to Corbyn and especially MacDonald, actually, uh, they were looking ahead, and some of McDonald's ideas on the economy were forward-looking, but they never framed the argument in that way. Instead, uh, all the newspapers and the commentators were saying is back to the 1970s, and they never challenged it. They never said, no, we're not. We were moving ahead rather than back. And in that failure to teach, they, they were leading towards their doom. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Opposition leaders, by the very nature of the name, are supposed to 
oppose. You know, that's what everyone expects them yeah. to do, to hold the government to account. Um, but in your essay, you, you talk about moments where, certainly on the conservative side, there were leaders who uh, who didn't oppose, and that helped them in terms of Cameron, and who did oppose when actually they shouldn't have in the uh, case of William Hague. Yeah, this is part of the art of opposition. The, by definition, <laughs> you are there to, as you suggest, oppose the government. But the subtle art of opposition is to sometimes undermine the government by supporting it. And so Cameron uh, very cleverly basically said when Blair was still prime minister, on many issues, I support him. He was rumoured to have said, I'm the heir to Blair. And that undermined Blair within the Labour Party, which was already getting restive by then, post-Iraq, Blair introducing highly contentious public service reforms. And to have the leader of the opposition, this Conservative leader, saying he supports it, made Blair more vulnerable. So Cameron, in a subtle way, was fulfilling his remit by making the Prime Minister vulnerable in supporting him. And William Hague, uh, he was very young and inexperienced when he was leader of the opposition in 97, had a golden opportunity when uh, Blair and Brown, in the opening phase of that government, stuck to the Tories' uh, tax and spend plans as they pledged to do. William Hague should have stood up, but we're delighted. We're out of power after 18 years, but you're carrying on with our economic policies. We'll support you. The Labour Party. Said, we're not in office, but we're still in power. Exactly. He could have used that very phrase. And the Labour Party said, What the hell's going on? We've been out of power for 18 years and we're doing stuff that Hague st- supports. And it would have led to huge internal tensions. Instead, Hague walked straight into a trap called that early Labour government profligate and reckless which absolutely fed into the dream narrative for Labour because they say, look how responsible we're being, but we're clearly doing some radical things because we're being accused of being profligate. And he fell into a complete trap. He would have undermined early Blair and Brown when they were walking on water by supporting them. So that's an example of where opposition demands real subtlety and brilliance, actually, and courage. Uh, So, for example, if, big if, Boris Johnson invests hugely in infrastructure, uh, intervenes in markets. The new leader of the opposition should stand up and say, these are left of centre values, we support you. And the Tory right, who remain uh, sort of Thatcherite, small state, the, the glory and purity of markets, will start to twitch really nervously. But it's a tough thing to do, because uh, your instinct to say this is outrageous every time. But clever leaders play the sort of rhythms of politics in very interesting ways. Um, you said that obviously the you know, the main way of seeing whether a, a, an opposition leader is good as their job is if they become prime minister. But is there necessarily a correlation between being a good opposition leader and being a good prime minister? No, not necessarily. Um, uh, We mentioned Cameron. He was quite an effective, quite an effective leader of the opposition in that he did subtle things like backing Blair. He did have a story which he didn't really believe in himself or understand what it meant about the big society. And there is such a thing as society. It's not the same as the state, which was a clever way of, as Oliver Letwin put it to me, reheating Thatcherism. But it fooled parts again of the BBC and newspapers into thinking this was a new form of Toryism. Very clever. Uh, But he was underdeveloped as a political figure and wholly out of his depth as Prime Minister. Uh, And he, of course, didn't win an overall majority the first time. 
uh, although he did the second time just. So there isn't an automatic correlation. However, there is no doubt in my view, being leader of the opposition is very good preparation for being prime minister. And I think one of the problems Theresa May had, for example, is that she hadn't had to think across politics as a leader of the opposition and work out how you frame an argument uh, when you adopt a policy. So she moved from the Home Office into number 10 without any of the skills to really make being a Prime Minister work, uh, which is one of the themes of my book on Prime Ministers. It's a different form of leadership, but actually being leader of the opposition is the best possible preparation. And it's going to be interesting with Boris Johnson, once he's through his honeymoon period, uh, whether he can range widely and convincingly in a way that you have to do to be a successful leader of the opposition. And do you think that he is going to potentially struggle in the same way as Theresa May? Or is the fact that he's had eight years as mayor of London has had to sort of think about politics and and how to draw support from different parts of of a city that is uh, perhaps more liberal and more to the left than him? Do you think that might stand, stand him in good stead? Well, he's certainly already in electoral terms proved far more potent than she ever did, winning in London and winning this big, big majority. So he's a very different figure with a different background. But leadership at that level, the prime ministerial level, demands so many skills. So, for example, Theresa May did have a kind of mastery of policy detail having been at the Home Office for more than five years, six years. He has never really been tested by policy implementation. As mayor, policy implementation is relatively straightforward and over a narrow range. At the Foreign Office, he did virtually nothing. Um, So the detail of policy implementation and how you keep a party on board as you are implementing contentious policies will be entirely new to him and I think uh, will test him. Uh, What he is clearly good at is winning elections and campaigns. Uh, He's won the Brexit referendum, London twice, and a general election by a huge majority. That is cumulatively an epic triumph of leadership. But policy implementation is entirely different to campaigning. And he's a journalist. Michael Gove is a journalist. Dominic Cummings is a campaigner. Let's see, but I think they're going to be really tested on the detail of policy implementation. And I guess big question going forward is who will be testing them? Who will be on the other side of the aisle? We've got a a Labour leadership election that's going on at the moment. And I guess from your point of view and your arguments about what makes a good opposition leader, at least this time around, there is going to be a debate about leadership style and what the leader is like whereas in 2015 when it was Jeremy Corbyn it was very much about um, it was focused on policy yeah and Corbyn was going to have a break with uh, with what come before in a way that the other candidates hadn't yeah. this time around it does seem a lot more about well what is this leader going to be like can they can they lead yes yes that's a really good point and that is quite unusual in a leadership contest. If you look back, uh, not just the one uh, with Jeremy Corbyn, but the one that Ed Miliband won, it was, oh, he's a bit to the left of New Labour. That's where we need to be. Uh, If you look at the Tory ones, uh, much the most suitable post-97 as a candidate in terms of popularity and experience was Ken Clark. 
but he wasn't considered for a moment because he was pro-European. And so it's nearly always about the position they are within a party, not their qualities for leadership. You're right that, to some extent, the margins, but still pretty central in this Labour leadership contest is, uh, can they take on this government? Might they prove to be of wider appeal to the electorate? Uh, Have they got a weightiness to lead? And uh, other questions, like have they got a charisma? Can they deal with an Andrew Neil interview? Uh, These kind of things that actually recur all the time in the daily hell of being leader of the opposition are at least being considered in the context of this leadership contest. So that's unusual and a good thing, in my view. And from what you've read of the candidates, from what you've seen of them, are there any that you think grasp this idea that you have of how you have to be a teacher? Do there look to be any teachers out there? Um, Not yet, no. Trainee teachers. Trainee teachers. um, You have to assume that Keir Starmer having been a lawyer, having spent his life in a career where you have to frame arguments, has the capacity to be, but I haven't seen the full explainer stroke teacher in him. I think Lisa Nandy is very interesting in that she she has got a, a, a sort of unexpected charisma. When she's being interviewed or is speaking, you think, oh, I don't know whether I'll be able to be bothered with this and she draws you in in a way that you don't expect to be um, which is a considerable quality I wouldn't give her the teacher uh, thing yet uh, but Thatcher didn't have it when she stood as a Tory leader in 75 you acquire it Um, but I can see in those two the potential for it but it's very hard to judge in advance um Barbara Castle said about Thatcher, the former Labour minister now dead, power made her beautiful. And what Castle meant by that was that in advance, Thatcher could have been a strident, awkward, eccentric figure when she acquired the crown. But it kind of worked. She became leaderly. Same, by the way, with Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland. Power made her beautiful. When she was Alex Salmon's deputy, she was awkward, shy. Uh, power worked for her. Uh, I thought with Ed Miliband during the leadership contest, whenever that was, 2010, I could see him becoming leaderly, but as it turned out, it didn't work. So it's very hard in advance to see whether the crown will fit or not. But I can see in those two a potential leaderliness or whatever the word is that works. <laughs> um but we won't know until one of them gets the crown and then we'll know very very quickly steve richards thank you very much indeed thank you That's all from us this week. Thank you very much for joining us on the Prospect interview. You can, of course, read Steve's essay in the new issue, which is still out on newsstands, uh, and, of course, on our website, prospectmagazine.co.uk. We'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, Thanks also to Stephanie Boland and our producer, Rebecca Lee. Finally, if you enjoyed the Prospect interview, and frankly, if you've got this far, then either you really did enjoy it um, or you forgot to turn us off, uh, please do leave us a rating and a review uh, wherever it is, whichever platform you're listening to us on. It really does help other listeners find us. My name is Steve Bloomfield. Thanks very much for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>